Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, October 4th, 2018, the Me Too meets the Supreme Court edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? A fine afternoon to you. And I'm also joined, I'm happy to say, by a, a, a brand new guest... Uh, for Political Worldview, Kate Schenk, who's a doctoral researcher at the Department of Political Science as well. How are you doing, Kate? Very well, thank you. Thanks very much for being with us. Uh, We're back after a long interval, uh, in which time I spent two months in America, having an awesome time in New York, D.C. and other places at the State Department's expense. Yay. Uh, I then returned to Birmingham and savagely broke my left arm, uh, which is currently strapped and healing. So that's less good. Um, How were your summers, everybody? Did you have have a good time, Scott? Did you break any major bones and or (laughs) receive any subsidized uh, overseas trips? Not yet. (laughs) Give it time. Uh, But while you were in countering Trump land, I avoided it. So I spent a lot of it in Germany and in Ireland. So uh, make of that what you will, uh, that I'm having to be dragged kicking and screaming back into the first podcast. How about you, Kate? Did you go back to the belly of the beast at any point? I did not. I stayed here the whole summer. It was nice. I spent the last uh, two weeks out in the countryside near Derby, which was lovely. Lots of sheep. Okay. Wow. So uh, uh, everyone else has been finding a secluded idyll from which to retreat from the the problems of of the world, which I guess, uh, given my recent acquaintance with painkillers, arguably I have been too. So let's move on to the topic that we're discussing today, which the, the title of the episode will already have given, given you some indication of, which is the Brett Kavanaugh nomination for the Supreme Court, but uh, some context for the, for the listeners. While we were all away, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy sent American partisan politics into maximum overdrive by retiring from the U.S. Supreme Court. Because he was for some years the swing vote in 5-4 decisions, Republicans, who control the White House and the Senate majority, saw a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to secure a reliable conservative majority on the court, with implications for all sorts of controversial issues, including abortion rights, voting rights, corporate regulation, and political campaign finance reform. Donald Trump's pick was Brett Kavanaugh, a current U.S. Circuit Court judge and former official in the George W. Bush administration White House. Democrats and liberals never liked him because of his track record of conservative jurisprudence, but his nomination nevertheless appeared to be on course to straightforward Senate confirmation until on September the 16th it was made public that a California resident, Christine Blasey Ford, had sent a letter to her member of Congress alleging that Kavanaugh, heavily drunk, had attempted to rape her as a teenager at a party in Maryland when they were both teenagers. Since then, two further women have made allegations of abusive behavior towards women on Kavanaugh's part, and several contemporaries have come forward to suggest that in high school and college, Kavanaugh was a heavy drinker prone to blackouts, something his high school yearbook entry appeared to confirm. On Thursday, September 27th, both Ford and Kavanaugh testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Ford won praise from all sides for a restrained and credible performance. Uh, Kavanaugh, on the other hand, delivered an unprecedentedly vitriolic statement, often shouting or in tears, accusing Democrats of a conspiracy to destroy his good name and block his nomination for purely political reasons. Uh, He was supported in this by Senate Republicans 
And in the weeks since, politicians and the country have been profoundly and angrily divided over the credibility of the accusations against Kavanaugh, the appropriateness of his behavior during his testimony, and his fitness, the biggest question of all, for a lifetime appointment on the highest court in the land. Uh, This confirmation process is now a major new front in the culture war between the so-called Me Too movement, seeking a change in how seriously society takes women's accusations of sexual assault, and an angry conservative reaction against against it that has been brewing for some time. So that's the that's the table laid at some uh, at some length but to to begin at the beginning Scott perhaps we could come to you to explain there is a vacancy on the Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh is the uh, the president's pick to fill that vacancy. And before any of this most recent phase of claim and counterclaim came up, this was never this was already like quite a, a heated, sensitive, important issue. Why does it matter if Brett Kavanaugh becomes a, a justice on the Supreme Court? Well, let's let's start with a fundamental division, and that is in my textbooks when I was growing up, and even here today. It's like, well, you've got three branches of the U.S. government. You've got the executive, you've got the legislature, and then you've got the uh, Supreme Court, which is supposed to be this key part of checks and balances, and it's supposed to be above politics. So you've got that on the one side, and then on the other side, you've got the real world, where the Supreme Court is completely bound up with politics, not only bound up in politics and that its decisions will affect so many issues inside the states, but that the process of picking justices is now so political has been this way for many decades, but probably in the past 30 years. This real tussle between conservatives and not conservatives, I'm not sure if we're talking about liberals or moderates, but this tussle to, to sort of have control of an activist court. Now, the immediate backstory, just for the listeners, is that this sort of 5-4 balance in favor of supposedly, quote, the moderates or the not conservatives. In 2016, two years ago, um, Anthony Scalia, who was very, very conservative, I mean way conservative, up and died, and he had to be replaced. And for almost a year, the Republicans just stalled. I mean, totally stalled. to Who had a a majority in the Senate at that time and therefore would be required to approve Barack Obama, mm-hmm. then the president's nominated yeah. replacement. But they not even stalled on having a confirmation vote. They stalled on even having a process for hearings for the nominee, who right. uh, Merrick Garland. I mean, they basically said it's an election year, yeah. ergo, according to a new principle that we're going yeah. to pull out of thin air, we should wait to see what the outcome of yeah. that election is before we uh, address the question of this vacancy. When, in fact, beyond their supposedly high-minded posture, what they were saying is we want a conservative to replace Scalia, we don't think we'll get it with Obama. We'll wait until we get the next president. They got a president when it happened to be Donald Trump, and that meant that he could appoint Neil Gorsuch. Yeah, you know, very, very conservative, staunchly conservative, in fact. Um, but, but that was basically like for like. So one, yeah, of, the, was like, one of the conservatives on the court died, and then the yeah. Republicans played hardball so as to ensure they could replace him with another conservative. Yeah. Flash forward to this summer. And then you get Anthony Kennedy, who's the swing vote between the, you know, if he goes one way, it's 5-4 conservative, one way, it's 5-4 moderate. Now he resigns, and now it's all up for grabs. And so what happens, and I think this is an interesting part of the story, is is that it's not a case that the Trump advisors get together and say, okay, we're going to nominate, we're going to look at the judges. They went to the Federalist Society. Now, the Federalist Society is a really important part of American political life. On the surface, these are all like lawyers, right, supposedly part of the legal establishment really, really conservative and had built up their influence in Washington over the past generation. And they're the ones that provided 
the list of possible nominees to the White House, and Trump's lawyer, Don McGowan, went over it, and they come up with Kavanaugh, and they think it's all okay, because Kavanaugh has not only been a, a conservative judge, he's a conservative political activist mm-hmm. in the George W. Bush administration. Um, and it's like, okay. And he's already cleared yeah. the confirmation process to be on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for D.C., so you would therefore assume if there were issues with his basic viability as a candidate, they would have arisen already. Well, there was a big issue in 2006, and people have forgotten this because there's a lot of cover-up here in that in 2006, the American Bar Association did raise doubts about Kavanaugh, saying, look, we're not sure if he's nonpartisan, but he went through. Mm-hmm. In 2006. Now, the first part of Kavanaugh, before we get to the allegations, was really intense questioning about whether or not he's partisan. So there's questions about whether he's partisan because he was involved, allegedly, in improperly obtaining Democratic Party documents about 15 years ago. He uh, was in contact. Some of his friends are in a law firm which represents Donald J. Trump, and he had been in contact with them recently, which raises questions specifically about a conflict of interest if Trump comes up, for example, mm-hmm. for impeachment and if the court intervenes. But it looked like, getting into mid-September, that the Republicans had survived that. Right. They thought, all right, we've got it survived. So essentially, I mean, like, the thing that makes, the, in, in, this, in that instance, the thing that makes uh, Kavanaugh appealing to Republicans, which is that he's a solid, reliable, dyed-in-the-wool judicial conservative and Republican sympathizer slash functionary is what makes him uh, unappealing to Democrats because they feel like basically any game he might talk about being an impartial caller of balls and strikes on the law is just a front because he's actually going to be a down-the-line vote for what Republicans want on every given issue. For example, and the flashpoint or one of the flashpoints is Roe v. Wade, the decision which established in 1972 a woman's right uh, to choose over abortion which arch-conservatives have wanted overturned for decades. And they see a hope with Kavanaugh that he could be a 5-4 majority to do that. I'm not sure that happens, but that's just a simple one. So that's why... But, and that's, if I can just say, like, there are a variety of other issues. I flagged a few of them in the sure. introduction, but, you know... Um, uh, much more recently on the social conservatism versus liberalism mm-hmm. side. Anthony Kennedy was a vital vote for introducing marriage equality. Uh, conservatives don't much care for that. Campaign finance, efforts to restrict uh, big money donations to uh, political campaigns uh, have been knocked down repeatedly by the, by the Supreme Court, most recently in the form of a decision called Citizens United that many people think has been mm-hmm. extremely consequential for allowing almost unlimited uh, uh, rich person money, essentially, and corporate money to flow into, into campaigns. Uh, the, and, and on the question of presidential powers, uh, whether or not the president has almost unlimited latitude to be spared serious criminal investigation, yeah. these are all things where it's believed Brett Kavanaugh is liable to be rock solid for the Republican preference. Well, here's here's where I would see key issues, and I'll bring it around to Kate in terms of why the sexual assault allegations crystallize this. I, I think uh, campaign finance laws are already ripped to shreds. Not much more the court can do because the fact of the matter is is that you can drive a truck through the finance laws, as is witnessed by the fact of Trump and his own personal finances. Um, the I don't think you're going to see much on uh, same-sex rights in the sense of uh, marriage or civil unions, uh, you will have those, you know, those really high-profile cases of like whether or not a baker can discriminate 
uh, against same-sex couples, but that's already been pretty much resolved. Yeah. Well, one would imagine the, it brings a halt to any further movement yeah, down yeah. the progressive direction on that, on what that it, line. What it probably does is it means that a lot of environmental regulations are now at risk because the court can step in and rule them out of order, which reinforces what the Trump administration is doing with executive orders already. Uh, it means that the court may intervene on state gun control laws. Forget Nothing's going to happen at federal level, but they can now rip apart the restrictions states can impose. Uh, they can probably come in and step in on states' rights. Look at California, for example, across a whole arena of social and environmental approaches. And I think uh, what the court can do is set a tone which sort of complements the idea that the conservatives think they're in the ascendancy now yeah. in terms of redefining America. Now, why does the sexual assault allegations come into this and Roe v. Wade comes into this? Because already, you know, the issue of gender rights is one of those points that comes in there. And all of a sudden, the idea that Kevin is not going to play fair over gender rights it gets crystallized then about the events from his past. That's why it's so important that Christine Ford came forward. Okay, so that's one big meaty chunk of context here, that this is already a very controversial and consequential nomination to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Another huge important part of context here is Me Too, um, which, uh, as I said briefly in the introduction, is uh, like, uh, an enormously important cultural current that has been flowing through American society for the last one to two years, um, hugely heightening uh, the awareness of and political heat around the question of women's uh, treatment by men individually, but also uh, the way in which society responds politically, socially to the issue of, uh, of um, sexual attacks and abuse against women. Kate, could you give us a, a, a quick primer on what exactly the Me Too phenomenon is? Because maybe not everybody who, who's listening is, is immersed in that. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. I think it really started with the Harvey Weinstein allegations. And um, so that was, I believe, just two years ago now. And it's this idea that women have been silently putting up with sexual assault and sexual harassment and sexual abuse for ages. And that there hasn't been a space for them to come forward. And now, finally, women are starting to come forward and starting to say, well, no, I'm not going to put up with this. This isn't something I just have to deal with. This is something has to change. Mm -hmm. And it's been sort of this viral movement that's, that's expanded into protests and um, really just grabbed hold of the entire country. And it's, I think it's really about this idea that we no longer have to stay silent, that it's no longer the women's responsibility to deal with something that has happened to her. So it's sort of this, in, in sexual assault cases, often the victim or the, the woman in, in these cases is seen as it's her fault. Um, and this is a movement against that, that it's not a woman's fault if she's raped, or it's not a man's fault if he's raped, for that matter, that it's, it's not the victim's fault, and they shouldn't be held responsible for it, and the mm -hmm. blame shouldn't be put on them. Right. And I mean, as I said, a large part of it has been that there has been a culture of impunity surrounding powerful men uh, who, either because of their wealth or the seniority of their uh, professional position or because of their uh, place within some kind of network uh, or, or, or political movement, 
essentially they are shielded systematically by other men uh, from facing consequences for this sort of thing. So, you know, ranging from like directly silencing women by like once allegations have been made, telling them that they need to like pipe down and go away, uh, you know, through through uh, threats, real or implied to simply creating an atmosphere so obviously indifferent to that to, to, to the idea of uh, men behaving that way and so unlikely to punish it if accusations come forward that um, essentially a huge number of accusations are latently out there that have never been leveled because people never had any confidence that, that it would be taken seriously. Because in the few instances when powerful men have been uh, credibly accused of sexual assault, the women have been hauled over the coals in a very ugly way in public, and ultimately the men accused have not faced serious consequences until quite recently. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's this belief that women, women feel it's almost not worth coming forward because there won't be the consequences that they seek. The, the justice, so to speak, isn't there. And that the those that are in charge sort of of, of justice and, and whatnot are not going to hold to account these powerful men, that their power is worth more than whatever the woman says. Mm. And that the belief doesn't go to the woman. The belief generally goes to the man. And is generally on the side of the woman has to prove that something happened rather than the man proving that it didn't. Hmm. And sort of the the responsibility is is often on the victim bringing bringing forward the charges. Yeah, and and to to flag up something that younger listeners may not know, there is some history with this with regard to the Supreme Court, which is that one of the current Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas, uh, who was nominated for that role in the early 1990s, uh, was accused by a uh, junior colleague slash employee of having engaged in uh, pretty egregious workplace sexual harassment. And First of all, he was confirmed anyway, but secondly, the way in which the Senate Judiciary Committee, at that point controlled by, by Democrats, uh, managed the hearings related to that uh, was seen as being this like landmark moment, kind of in the airing of those kind of accusations publicly, but also in doing it in such a kind of condescending, uh, aggressively contradictory, dismissive way towards the, um, uh, Anita, Hill. Anita Hill, who had been the, the, the level of the accusations, that it, it did not give people people a very strong incentive to do to level those kind of accusations again, nor did it give anyone great confidence that these sorts of accusations are taken seriously. So we're kind of, we're revisiting something that has happened before, but we're doing it in an environment where a huge portion of the population has been mobilized based around the principle of saying, no, like this, this kind of stuff uh, simply can't fly anymore. Women have accrued enough uh, political say now to be able to, 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 change the rules of the game. Yeah. So what let's let's get into the details now, shall we? Of, of, uh, having having laid this context of Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination and explained why accusations of sexual assault and how they're dealt with are unusually important right now, how these two things meet to produce the white heat of the current the current moment. Brett Kavanaugh has been accused of what, Scott? Brett Kavanaugh has been accused by three women now. Uh, Professor Christine Blasey Ford, uh, Deborah Ramirez, Julie Swetnick, of either directly carrying out sexual assault or being involved in incidents which involved sexual assault. Uh, the 
context around this is that the Republicans, as we've been describing with this attempt to get their men on the court, wanted to get this done before the November elections because there's about a one in three chance that Democrats could take control of the Senate. And of course, if Democrats control, take control of the Senate, if all of them vote against Kavanaugh, he doesn't get through. So that's why there's sort of been this rush, almost a rush to injustice over the confirmation that was complicated because Christine Ford initially, when Brett Kavanaugh's name was in the mix to be a nominee, was very concerned about this because she says that in 1982 at a small party, small high school party, um, he, in front of his friend, a man named Mark Judge, who becomes important, uh, penned her down on the bed, groped her, attempted to remove her clothing until she was so forceful in resisting that he basically, he and Judge stopped it. She rushes off downstairs. Now, she wanted to know what could be done because she felt this was very serious, not about herself, not just about herself personally, but about this man being on the Supreme Court. She eventually goes to a California congresswoman. The California congresswoman goes to Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Feinstein, ironically, we've been talking about the Anita Hill case. She was motivated to run for public office, to run for the Senate eventually because of what she saw as the treatment of Anita Hill. But Feinstein, at this point, Christine Ford still wants to be confidential. So in the early part of the cabinet hearings, this doesn't come up because you can't put a name to this. But somehow the letter that Christine Ford set out, these details of what happened to her, does become public in mid-September, and then she decides that she will go on the record and talk to the Washington Post about it. And once she goes public with it, there's a name to this. Well, then it's like this has gotten serious because not only what she says, but because she's come forward and encourages the other two women, Deborah Ramirez, who says that Brett Kavanaugh at a freshman party, first-year party at Yale University, during a drinking game, put his penis in her face, and then Julie Swetnick, and I'm sorry for being explicit here, but we need to realize what's on the table. Julie Swetnick says that at a group of parties, a series of parties that she attended, that Kavanaugh was part of a group of men who were involved at some level of either watching or being directly involved in the drugging and sexual abuse gang rape of young women. So we've got those three cases. Where we are, and we will talk about this FBI investigation, but once Christine Ford came forward, the impulse was by the White House and by the GOP leadership, including the Judiciary Committee, limit this, contain this. They could not keep her from appearing before the Judiciary Committee. The Democrats said this has, she has to be heard. They thought, I honestly think they thought she would not be that credible, that they thought Look, she won't stand up to the pressure. They brought in a, a quote, and I'm going to use it, woman prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, to handle their questioning because a woman could discredit Ford. That attempt, however, failed spectacularly because Christine Ford, who they didn't think is a professional psychologist, is a professor of psychology, has gone through all this, just kept her calm, kept her reserved, at one point engaged with Mitchell in very high-brow discussions of psychology, in contrast, Kavanaugh, to some people, not all, and this will be interesting when we discuss this, but to some people, came across as playing the male victim card with a combination of aggression, aggression and defensiveness that I haven't seen since Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men, right? 
And the idea that he could just shout his way and then cry his way, although no tears appeared on his face, dear listener, that he could get this basically, I'm the credible one here, didn't quite come off that way. And so that's where we get to the one-week FBI investigation because one Republican senator, Jeff Flake, doesn't hold the line and says, I can't vote at this point for Kavanaugh unless we have this one-week investigation. But the upshot of this, before handing over to you all again, is we are in the midst of what became not an investigation but became a political cover note because the White House told the FBI through the Justice Department you can only interview a few witnesses. Two of the three women, Christine Ford, Julie Swetnick, were not interviewed by the FBI. Deborah Ramirez was interviewed when she told the FBI, I have corroborating witnesses. The FBI declined to interview any of the corroborating witnesses who include a professor, include a professor of theology at Yale and roommate of Brett Kavanaugh, who has said she's right. The FBI has not interviewed anybody about Brett Kavanaugh's drinking history, which is salient because it may be connected to the sexual assaults. In other words, the White House has effectively said, oh, we'll have this one-week investigation, which turned out to be five days, just to give the appearance that everything's been done. And where we are now is, as the attempt will be made at a vote very quickly to confirm Brett Kavanaugh and sweep all of this aside. Well, it's kind of, it, I mean, it, it's uh, it's a strange it's a strange mixture of uh, a, a strange bag of inconsistencies here, I think, because the Republicans, in responding immediately to the allegations made at, at first by Christine Blasey Ford, um, wanted to adopt the posture of being maximally forensic and cool and rational and say, look, we absolutely sympathize with anybody who has had a traumatic experience. We don't necessarily want to suggest that there are malicious lies being told here, but clearly uh, it is possible that there has been a case of mistaken identity or misunderstanding. And because Christine Blasey Ford is hazy on some of the details of what exactly she's alleging, you know, where did this attack happen? How did you get to that place? How did you get from that place? Um, It's very difficult for Brett Kavanaugh to prove a negative. So we need to... um, we need to detach ourselves from the emotional ramifications of linking this to broader issues like Me Too women's rights. We need to like look in detail seriously at the details of, of, of what did or did not happen in this bedroom in Maryland so that we can be fair to the person accused. And yet, then when we get to the point where Christine Blasey Ford comes forward and delivers to the best of her ability, the fact that she does remember in you know a calm and uh, pretty scrupulous way, I think everybody agrees. And this then throws up a variety of obvious follow-on questions that someone who was serious about getting to the facts might might want to pursue, like interviewing the other people who were alleged to be around at the time, trying to cross-reference dates and places as to what would be plausible or not plausible based on contemporary records of, of calendars, etc. Getting the broader contextual history of Brett Kavanaugh's drinking and treatment of women at that time from the various witnesses, uh, suddenly the Republicans pivoted to being 
militantly opposed to wasting resources, as they would see it, on any kind of investigation to those things. And Brett Kavanaugh himself came and delivered testimony that rather than being a forensic rebuttal of the charges against him based on a calm and dispassionate analysis of the facts, he basically just came and pounded the table, like tearfully. 90% of what he had to say was essentially focused on the uh, emotional cost to him of the fact that these accusations were out there and the outrageousness of the process by which he was being forced to answer for them in, in public at all. And after, like, aside from that, it was just like raw emotion about how he felt and how upset he was. And then Republicans using their questions to sympathize loudly with the fact that he was having to go through this terrible experience. So it's this weird thing where Christine Blasey Ford came and like, outlined what the accusations were. Democrats then said, well, given that those are on the table, shouldn't we have a deeper, wider, fuller investigation into whether they're true? And then uh, Republicans essentially queuing up to... um, uh, to loudly declaim the, un- the, the the outrageousness of the existence of the accusations in the first place, and the uh, uh, the sympathy that they felt in their hearts that that a good man like Brett Kavanaugh should be torn down this way. So it 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 kind of. It was simultaneously the case they wanted to nitpick about the the facts in the most Mr. Logic way at the outset and then pivoted to the most emotional and uh, almost parking of the facts declamations later on. Very strange. Did you see the testimony or or follow follow closely what happened? What did you make of it, Kate? I saw bits and pieces. I I watched about the first 10 minutes of Brett Kavanaugh's sort of rebuttal and had to change the channel and honestly couldn't couldn't listen to him anymore. Um, I think, Scott, you said he was playing the male victim, and he really was. And I think the double standard of it all is that if if a woman had behaved in the way that Brett Kavanaugh had behaved, they would have thrown her accusation out the door, she would have been done with in a day, and the whole thing would have been completely forgotten and, and ignored. And she didn't. She behaved sort of the way that Everyone says you should behave. She was very calm. She was very clear. She didn't get outraged. She sort of handled everything very well, I thought. And then he comes and just is hysterical and whiny and, um, you know, sort of, oh, woe is me, is his defense. And everyone is sort of more or less letting him get away with it. I think the Republicans, it shows more so that do they even really care is I think the broader message that comes out of it is that this was all a tick box exercise because of the Me Too movement. They couldn't ignore the sexual violence allegations. They had to do something. And then when they realized that that's something they decided to do was going to mean they had to do more, they backtracked and said, Oh, well, we've already done enough. Then we've done something time to move on. Let's get going. And it, it does sort of purvey that idea that, we don't really care about this in the first place. And that that sort of privilege, again, of the man is allowed to just say, oh, well, this isn't fair. You're going to ruin my future. Um, this sort of Brock Turner um, reference has come up, and I don't know if everyone knows about him. He was a teenager who was caught attempting to rape a woman behind a bar, and the woman reported it the next day. There were actually two witnesses, I believe, that, that saw him and, and helped the woman. And... He basically got let off. He was tried. It became very public. And they said it would ruin his future. And he got let off. And this has sort of been been brought in, I think, to the Brett Kavanaugh in that, well, if we allow teenage boys to behave this way, what kind of message are we sending to these women and, and to the public in general that we're just going to sort of accept 
these things happening. Mm-hmm. And I think it comes, it all sort of comes together in, in the idea of, do we really care about these women that are being abused? And are we more upset for Dr. Ford's life has been upturned. She had to leave her house. I know her, she's got children that have been affected by this as well as he does. And yet the focus seemed to be on the fact that this was damaging his future. Hmm. And this was going to affect him for the rest of his life. Even though it had clearly already affected her for a substantial part of her life and is going to be a major aspect of her life for the rest of her life as well. Right, because one of the unfortunate facets, I mean, there are many unfortunate facets of these kinds of episodes, but one of the unfortunate facets is that for the women who make these accusations, the fact of having done it then becomes like the singular thing that subsumes all other acts and achievements of their entire lives. Anita Hill will forevermore, the first line in Anita Hill's uh, obituary will draw attention to the fact that she was sexually harassed by Clarence Thomas. Uh, And that, you know, uh, is not something that many people, however strong their sense of civic duty might be to draw attention to the fact that someone's about to enter high office who's like that, um, that that, that they're willing to undertake lightly because you you don't want to you have your identity stolen in a sense by 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 association with with this much larger narrative especially when you know that the political interests and the power interests involved will 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 mean you get your whole life raked over in an effort to defend the person you're leveling the accusations against i mean a question that we might we might maybe usefully ask ourselves about this is Given what we've just said, that there are huge disincentives to anybody in Christine Ford's position to to come out and level these kind of accusations, it's extremely unlikely that they are not sincerely made, therefore, because it would be a crazy thing to do to put yourself in this position unless you sincerely believe that they are that they are um that they are true on the other hand the republicans have been quite keen to turn this process into something um analogous to like a court proceeding the way in which they talk about um what's going on is all in terms of a reasonable doubt and the idea that no prosecutor would ever bring a case based on this evidence and that uh, the, the, the accusations do not pass with the information we currently have and the time that's passed and the level of detail that Christine Blasey Ford can provide, the threshold for a criminal punishment. Um, but, of course, a nomination to the Supreme Court is not a trial for your freedom. No one is suggesting that Brett Kavanaugh should go to jail. What they're saying is that if if these accusations are made against you and you cannot dispel them to the satisfaction of people listening to your defenses, then, you know, in much the same way as if you're thinking of hiring someone for a job, the mere fact that they are accused of serious, uh, uh, serious crimes and can't convince you that, 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 they're not, that they're not guilty of them is enough for you not to hire them. You don't need to call the... Um, the justice system in to do it. Similarly, the U.S. Senate could very readily decide that they don't. They don't think that Brett Kavanaugh is a person of the character or, or, or history that that is fit to fulfill this role. So, what I want to ask, I guess, is to what extent do we have to be convinced at this point that the allegations as made are definitely true to decide that Brett Kavanaugh should not be confirmed to this position? Because some people are swinging very hard 
behind the kind of believe women framework, which is that by virtue of an accusation being made, ipso facto, we all owe a duty to act as though it is definitely true. And then on the other side, you have people who want to apply the highest standard possible for accusations to be taken seriously at all, which is, could someone be jailed on the basis of the evidence as we know it? Like most other people are kind of somewhere in between trying to get a foothold. What, what do you think? I, th- I think that the talking about it as a job interview is an excellent point. And the way that Brett Kavanaugh chose to defend himself, I think, is, is really where the attention should lie in that sense that, yes, perhaps it is not a prosecutable case. Um, perhaps it wouldn't go to court, which, to be fair, brings in issues with how we prosecute sexual violence cases in America in general. And investigation. And investigations. Have to say, like, and, like the and, people who say that there isn't enough evidence are also the people who are opposed to any of the investigating that would potentially produce that evidence. Exactly. And, and so what we need to look at is, is this man fit to serve on the Supreme Court? Does he have the temperament to serve on the Supreme Court? Is he somebody that we can trust? See somebody that we think can hold himself above the partisanness of it all, as a Supreme Court justice should. And if he had, I think if he had come out and calmly sort of said, look, this was a long time ago. I don't remember what happened. I apologize that this woman feels this way. I don't think it was me. I think it's a case of mistaken identity, you know, whether it was or not. Or, or if he'd sort of given her some sort of credit for, for coming out in the fact that obviously she thinks something happened, sort of given her, I think, if he'd behaved more in the manner that she'd behaved, then perhaps maybe we could see him as a Supreme Court justice. I think his behavior in the trial so far, and, and certainly how it started, shows that he's very temperamental. Mm. He, he seems to be very temperamental. And, and somebody that perhaps you wouldn't trust to make decisions that are so important. Right. I mean, there were three parts to it, really, as, as, as far as I saw with, with, with him. Like, that, that he, first of all, in the course of his, his, his testimony, he was asked to write a contextual questions. Because, like, if this thing really did happen, the supposition is that because he was a heavy drinker in, in this period of his life, he may well have been at some party uh, drunk as a skunk with his confessed alcoholic blackout having friend Mike Judge who has since written a book about his, the severity of his problems with, with alcohol done what's described by Christine Blasey Ford like bundled her into a bedroom groped her uh, uh, like laughed uh, uh, uproariously about how hilarious this is and then just gone back about his day because he did you know he, he got drunk and did loutish things all the time and then just didn't didn't really remember that it happened. So a lot of contextual questions about his drinking and his attitude towards women and the people he associated with and their attitude towards women got asked during these proceedings. So they were, you know, for example, it was a yearbook entry from his high school that made several references that appeared to imply that he was a heavy drinker. Uh, There were other reports that suggested he made jokes about memory loss during this period. There was a reference in the high school yearbook entry um, to uh, a girl at a neighboring school where they qualified. Her name was Renate. Renate Ireland. 
But, um, like, uh, they, they, he and he described himself as an alumnus of this mm-hmm. woman. Uh, mm-hmm. and several other people made jokes in the yearbook about her, clearly implying uh, whether true or truly or not that they had had some kind of relation with her. So he was asked a lot of questions about all of this, and he just lied. Like he absolutely flatly, you know, basically said I'd, he, the most he was willing to say was that he used to drink like quite a bit. I like but, beer. Yeah. Right. He he like yeah, exactly. he, he likes beer. Do you like beer? Uh, I like you know, um, but he. He, he was ex- abs- disingenuous at best in acknowledging the fact that he was a heavy drinker. He spun a, a ludicrous lie about the meaning of that reference to Renate in his uh, in his um, yearbook entry to imply that he had uh, that the, the Democrats were the ones who were making this poor woman's life hard by by alleging that it was anything other than a fond, affectionate gesture of uh, solidarity from the boys. He, like, there was a couple of slang words that were in the yearbook, uh, devil's triangle and boofing, which, like, apparently everyone in the entire metropolitan D.C. area, contemporary to him, says clearly mean one thing, and he just straight up said they meant a different thing. So there's that idea of, like, that this is someone who's not forthcoming. Like, he's clearly decided early in this thing, if I try to, like... Uh, split the difference here and go, oh, look, I was a different guy then. I may have behaved badly, but I'm really sorry. And also, I don't think I did this specific thing, that that's not going to work. So it's like scorched earth, deny everything, uh, lie boldly or lose. So like, there's that, that concern about lying. There's the temperament thing, which is that he, rather than coming out and going, well, of course, it's extremely serious. These, I can understand why everybody on this committee has decided to take these accusations seriously. I'm glad that you have. We need to like work through them together so I can get you to where I want you to be, which is that you don't believe I did this because it's important that that's established. But he didn't do that. He came out screaming and roaring about how like never had anyone been harder done by than to have you know anyone even discuss the fact that these accusations have been made i don't know what he would think the like what would what his alternative reality would even be that this letter arrived and then was promptly burned by the democratic officials who received it and there was no discussion and then thirdly the fact that he made it so partisan while he was like melting down uh, like glugging water uh, like a dying man in a desert and weeping uh, like you know some character in a Greek play he, he like assault, he assailed the Democrats for a, a, a essentially a conspiracy to destroy him and when he's on this court his bread and butter is going to be politically charged disputes about constitutional law brought by democratic elected officials and a man who has just demonstrated that he considers democratic elected officials to be his mortal enemies who have sought through lies and conspiracy to destroy him. That's a serious problem. So if the guy's a liar, if the guy loses his shit under pressure uh, and if he uh, is a partisan uh, is now an overt partisan saying that Democrats are his enemies. Well, that's a, like setting aside any evaluation of the truth of the accusations. That seems to make him a very bad fit to be a, to be a Supreme Court justice. And I th- uh, yeah, I think the point that he did accuse the Democrats of this being about the Democrats out to get him sort of does show that he's quite partisan. And I, I think ideally, while in reality, it's usually not the case, but ideally a Supreme Court judge should be able to remove the partisan politics from it. Be you conservative, liberal, moderate, whatever, you shouldn't be a Republican on the court. You shouldn't be a Democrat on the court. There's a ritual you go through, even if you do have those kind of sympathies, of like saying that you are 
you know, the law is important exactly. and you're not there to set policy, you call balls and strikes. And even if everyone knows on some level that you like sympathize with one side or the other, the legitimacy of the court is preserved by you not just like coming and saying, you, are, you know, you are there I to hate Democrats the because they're my enemies, which is basically what he in his many words said. Yeah. And that and that struck me as something that that should be taken seriously, because for him to so easily come forth and say, and sort of pull in again this, oh, it's the Democrats out to get me, which which sort of follows the Trump theme of everyone's out to get me and bring all that in, worries me about his position on the court. But there's a wider issue here, folks. None of what you say matters with respect if Brett Kavanaugh goes into that room and testifies that the, and thinks the Republicans have got his back. Mm-hmm. And I want to open out this out a little bit by talking about a few instances and asking, all right, what does this mean beyond Brett Kavanaugh? From the standpoint of Kavanaugh stuff, you, you know, Adam said, look, it, it's, they're gonna, the Republican strategy was we're going to take this as a legal process and so on. They abandoned that at a key moment in the hearing when their chosen prosecutor, the woman prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, refers Kavanaugh to an entry on one of the, the creepy calendar entry mm-hmm. where she actually points to an incident on July the 1st, 1982, which unwittingly, appears to back up Christine Ford's Right, because she showed up with these calendars, which mm-hmm. incidentally were the main trigger for his tears, because apparently his complicated feelings about his dad were like bound up with them. <laughs> but he showed up with this calendar, which has Beach Week written in like four-story four high letters across it, and was waving it around as though in the most unambiguous way possible it proved his innocence. Now, even if like it, it, it had nothing remotely incriminating on it, that would be a weird thing to do because people don't usually write commits some sexual assaults like on, <laughs> on their, their war planner. But like setting that aside, it turns out that actually like at the precise window that this crime is alleged to have been committed, he has himself on the calendar going for beers with like three of the people who Christine Ford says were potentially with, present. At this with event. Mark P. Jane Squee, right? And it was at that point that the Republicans threw the prosecutor oh, yeah. to the side. They're pressing the button under the table like, abort, abort. Abort, you're out. And then it's at that moment, let's get the gender dynamics in here, that Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who so desperately wants to be attorney general, decides to try his To Kill a Mockingbird speech. Except, of course, this isn't a black man who's about to be lynched, as in the film. It's Brett Kavanaugh, who may have assaulted yeah, him. And he's no Atticus Finch. Uh, it, it, to, no. To... So Lindsay goes into this whole matter about it. This is the worst thing I've ever seen in decades. This, this is an unethical sham. Lordy, lordy, lordy. And, and is then screaming at the top of his lungs, turning pews. But instead of everybody saying, man, this, this just got even weirder on the committee, what the committee then tries to do is just run through the vote. So the next day, when the Democrats say, look, we should have an investigation, and that's your bottom line. Your bottom line is whether you call it a job interview, whether you consider this to be a proceeding, which is not quite a criminal trial, but quite serious, your bottom line is these are serious charges and they should be investigated. Right. If there is evidence that this person is of bad character, and I would think that like willfully lying in the face of credible accusations uh, would serve as evidence of bad character, then that should be like verified and established to the best of our ability before this vote gets cast, you would think. You would think. Because once fact, he's on the court, if like if it's not like everyone is going to suddenly stop caring about this once he's confirmed. So if people continue to investigate Brett Kavanaugh after he's confirmed, then it turns out that like some of all of this stuff is true and or he's lied during these hearings. Well like what there's nothing what, you can what, do. what then, right? Like this is the time, if any, 
for an investigation. Exactly. Well, let me walk you through a couple of the incidents and get your reaction to it. Because Friday morning is the day after the testimony, and it started with the Democrats calling for the investigation. Chris Coons of, of Delaware called for the one-week investigation. And, and Charles Grassley, who's about 182 years old, and is just, it's like the idea that this man is nonpartisan, forget it. Charles Grassley is just going, shut up, let's vote, let's vote, let's vote. And they vote to reject that. Then Jeff Flake, the GOP senator who doesn't like Trump admittedly, but he gets cornered in an elevator, a lift, by two survivors of sexual assault, and he just can't face them. And he is so shaken up that he comes back into the room, and that's what changes the dynamic. He and Chris Coons then basically strike this arrangement for a one-week investigation while Charles Grassley is sitting in the next room just like with his head about to explode. But the way I want to take it beyond that is, is the dynamics of the investigation, which is not only have we seen the limitation investigation, which we talked about, what really gets me is all along they started off with the idea, all right, we're going to treat Christine Ford as credible. We're going to say that. Well, they kept saying she was credible, but then they kept proceeding as though nothing she said was true, which is a kind of difficult balance to strike. And in the last 48, 72 hours, you can see see the the hit pieces that have come out in the media say she's lying about her fear of flying. She's Mm -hmm. lying about her attitude about polygraphs because they're saying she basically manipulated the polygraph test that she took. Uh, They have come up and dragged up an ex-boyfriend from somewhere to make allegations against her. And then, of course, you get Donald Trump on Tuesday night. And I thought at one point this was just Trump going off script and being just the type of person Trump is. But I'm not so sure now. I think it may have been planned, which in front of this crowd in Mississippi, he's imitating Christine Ford, right, and lying about what she said while the crowd is just hooting and hollering, mainly, by the way, white folks, if that matters, and cheering him on. I want to bring this around because I want to ask Kate this question. What struck me is because you kept talking about, I'm wondering how people react to it. And at one level, you talked about how some people will see it if they've been in Me Too. But over the past week, on social media, I'm getting women coming onto my timeline who are trashing Ford, saying awful things about her. But these women tend to be, in this case, at least, they tend to be even older than me. They're in their 70s, they're in their 80s. Quite often, they're university-educated women but they are going after her. So have we got not only a gender dynamic that's working here, but have we got a generational dynamic? And if so, what does that say beyond Kavanaugh about what, where Me Too goes? Yeah, I think there's definitely a gender dynamic, but part of the, part of the problem is, is that we wouldn't have the Me Too movement if women weren't on the part of sort of the Harvey Weinsteins as well. That, that it is, it's not sort of all women against all men. Um, certainly. And I think there is generational, I I don't know as much, but I, I think there are women that are inclined to believe the men. And then there are women that are inclined to believe the women. And there are men that are inclined to go either way as well. And I, I, I wonder with the politicization of everything, whether it really matters so much as time goes on, sort of what she said and what he said, and whether it's that people are going to take her side because they think that in general women who've been sexually abused have been hard done by. Mm. And and then the people that think, we're, you know, Trump said it's a dangerous time to be a boy in America, and that, that sort of think that all these accusations are just a way to get 
men in trouble um, to sort of accuse men of and and bring them down, so to speak. That people that think that most sexual assault allegations are are to a, an attack on the man, that they're going to side with Brett Kavanaugh and whether it really matters what went on mm-hmm. to a certain extent. I mean, it really seems like it it brings home like the the rationale for diversity in representative institutions. Cause, okay, I mean, let's like park Donald Trump for a minute because he's just like the worst and the scum of the earth and almost certainly uh, a sexual assaulter himself. Yes. Um, so he is he is in some ways an outlier because of the, the, like, the brazenly um, scandalous way in which he goes about treating these kind of cases. But if we take it to the Republican Senate Judiciary Committee, like... You know, I don't think that most of those are the kind of people who, like, self-consciously revel in, like, creating a permissive environment for consequence-free sexual assault. But I do think, like, especially when you've got Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch, like, two people who are, like, both older than Methuselah, mm-hmm. um, who seem like they've been reanimated backstage before they've been, before being sent out for the hearing, um, you know, who between them have been in the Senate for, like, the best part of a century uh, together like you know i think chuck grassley made a point that made a point at some point oh, i hope no one hope no one would ask me what i was doing 30 34 36 years ago it's like you were 50 uh, uh, yeah. back, back in those days chuck grassley mm-hmm. so like it's that if if as is the case with the republican representation on this committee like everybody that you have is like a middle-aged or or elderly white dude uh, from a conservative milieu then like they don't have to be malevolent in their in their feelings they just have they've, they've been socialized over decades in a world where like men just got to do unreflectively a whole bunch of things physical and verbal towards women without anyone challenging them challenging them about it um, and the norms have changed, but like if any category of society is going to be the last to like fully register that, let alone approve of it, like these are going to be the guys. So like if you had a representative body where like I'm not saying that if if you're a, an old white conservative guy, it's not that you don't have the right to have views and speak and be represented, but if because of the nature of the institutions and the system that selects people to go into them, like everybody is an old white conservative dude, then you're just going to gravitate towards a certain way of seeing these situations, which is like the questions that seem superficially reasonable, like, well, you know, how did you get to that party? And uh, who else was there? And all these kinds of things. Um, like we'll get overriding priority because you've got to like probe Christine Ford in every possible way to get the details. Whereas good old Brett, uh, who everybody everybody knows, Brett's a good guy who likes beer, right? Like he can say a bunch of manifestly flim-flammy things, some of them provably untrue, and that doesn't matter because the basic, the gut instinct that everybody has is, well, look, you know, maybe he did or maybe he didn't get drunk and manhandle some some schoolgirl in a room in Maryland 34 years ago, but Brett went to Yale and Brett busted his tail lifting, ye- lifting weights uh, and, you know, uh, Brett's put in the hard yards with the Federalist Society in the years since. So like, we can't be living in a kind of society where people, where good men like Brett uh, get done down by these kinds of, um, you know, uh, 
irresponsibly made and substantively not that important anyway kind of accusations. That's If you're that kind of person, that's where your gut is on this. So if that kind of person exclusively makes up Republican representation, then that, that's what you're going to get. So like a stronger argument for putting more people who don't demographically resemble Chuck Grassley and Orrin Hatch in the Senate, you couldn't possibly get them this spectacle, right? Oh, definitely. But that brings out a couple tests. I mean, one is just... I was shocked. I think I read this correctly, that the number of Republican women who have served on the Senate Judiciary Committee in 200 years, number of the week, is zero. I believe I read that. And if, so, if I'm wrong, listeners, please come in and tell me. But I, It's certainly I zero that, now. Yeah, we know that. If there's none now. I can't imagine there were any before. Exactly. It's zero. Now, I think that raises an interesting point. I think it will raise a further dynamic in this case, by the way, in that two of the three undecided Republican senators are women. Uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Susan Collins of Maine. And they're going to be in the limelight in the remaining days up to confirmation. But I think beyond that, I'd say one thing politically that we're looking at is, and I will be willing, I've, I've made some bad bets in the last couple of years, but I'm on a winner here. It will be a woman who leads the Democratic ticket in 2020 for the presidency. I don't know which woman it will be, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, uh, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, but it will be a woman leading the ticket. And that leads me to the wider question. That is, if Kavanaugh gets onto the court, and he's going to have a target on his back, I think it will not be like Clarence Thomas. I think it's going to be beyond that. Every move he makes will be scrutinized. How much of this is a wave which leads to a change in American politics over the next few years, over the next generation? Or how much do we have a hold-the-line type of politics which goes back to almost like you defend your line. You get your Breitbart, you get your Fox, and you just simply play the fact that white men are under attack, and you can still play that card. That, for me, is the big unanswered question right now. Yeah, and I, I don't know. It's an excellent question, and I, I'd, I'd love to think that there is a change coming, that, that even even purely the visual spectrum of this whole thing is enough to almost push a change forward. But there's been moments in the past where you feel that, oh, well, this this surely should do it. Like, oh, well, this can't go on. And and yet the cycle keeps repeating itself. And those those same men keep saying, oh, well, we're just downtrodden and, and we're under attack. And and they keep getting in. And, and the system is built to defend them to a certain extent. Um, I think with with the gerrymandering and and sort of um, and the you know incumbents tend to be reelected more often than not and and all of that the system leans in their favor so it requires more of a shift more of a dramatic shift to actually change something yeah and it's unfortunate that like it <sighs> It's become a partisan issue because American society is profoundly divided between the political parties, and it's becoming increasingly apparent that like women uh, have very great sway, inc- like, never have had more sway, and are increasingly going to have even more within one of those parties, with the result of them making the issues that matter to them like foreground issues in a way they weren't before. And that's meaning that because they don't have any of that sway in the other party, probably the Republican Party is going to just by default end up becoming the vehicle for the defense of like, increasingly extreme caricature versions of male, uh, of male mm-hmm. privilege. Whereas, you know, in a healthier 
situation, you would have both parties have sufficient female representation, and you know, not just like cosmetically person out front, but like you know, or photographs on the brochure, but like enough people with meaningful political power at the voter level and at the elected official level to enforce movement, and therefore these issues could play out. Like within each of the parties, as opposed to becoming like it seems said to become a fight between them. I think it's a great point. Um, let me just add a couple things. One is just another moment into the mix, and then a wider point. Um, when Donald Trump appeared earlier this week to talk about <laughs> what is just simply a revision of the North American Free Trade Agreement, but they told him it has a different name, so I think it's something entirely new. United States, Mexico, and Canada Agreement, I yeah, think, exactly. is what they changed it what? to. And yeah, that's what they changed it to, like Umuska, um, which doesn't roll off the tongue like NAFTA does. But he's sitting there, and uh, Cecilia Vega of ABC News got up to ask him a question. Really wanted to ask about Kavanaugh. But the moment is that... Uh, he, he turns around and he's looking at his entourage. He goes, <laughs> she's shocked I called on her. He's just shocked. And she goes, no, I'm not shocked. Thank you, Mr. President. And she goes, oh, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. You're never thinking. You're, you're not thinking. You're never thinking. And the, the reason I bring it at that moment, because you know, that entourage that were around him, there were some women that were on the sides of the entourage, but all behind him except for one person, they're all men. They're all white men. I mean, it's Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, Stephen Mnuchin, and they're all giving it the male laugh at what he's just done to put this woman down. That stayed with me. The broader point is, is how many times can you put this down? And I think, just to bring in an outside element, I'm wondering if what we're looking at in, maybe not this year, but in 2020, remember it's the conjunction of women's movement along with issues around people of color. Because we've been talking about Black Lives Matter in the past few years. We're sitting at a cultural moment where at least in certain seconds of American society, having just seen black Klansmen with Star coming out, which are going to be films that are going to be catching the moment, right? It comes down to turnout. If you get the women's movement and you get people of color, and it'll be marked out at the polls probably in this November, but in 2020, if they turn out, things shift. If they don't turn out, where are we then? I think I think it comes back to money in that case, to a large part, in that which party is going to spend the money to get the turnout that they need to win. Oh, you said. And and unfortunately, it. it in the past, that's leaned towards the Republican side, spending the money. Yeah, but Beto O'Rourke is spending three times yeah. as much as Ted Cruz in Texas for that. Yeah, race. exactly, so we'll and, and he's doing well. So, so you know, who knows? But I do. I think it'll come down to turnout. Yeah. Definitely, if you can get all the women and and sort of the people of color out to vote for the Democrats, that's a swing. Definitely. Well, God willing, we shall be returning to uh, uh, Ted Cruz uh, at some point in the in the not too distant future. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can leave us a rating or a comment. It really helps us if you do that. Please, uh, please take some time if you if you have some to do it, and you can also share us on, on on social media and tell people that they should listen to the pod. That's how people often discover things. Recommendation from a friend. We We'd really appreciate it. I consider it a personal favor if you do that for me. Uh, you can like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash poll worldview to see uh, links to the show and, and other things. Um, our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you on social media, Scott? You can find me at the news and analysis site EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, covering the United States, but also the Middle East, Europe, and anywhere else where there's trouble. Or you can find me on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA. 
And Kate, do you have a, a social media presence you'd like to advertise to the world where people can uh, like, uh, possibly attack you unwarrantedly? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on, I'm on Facebook, but that's opinions? it. I don't have a Twitter account. I've Probably very wise in, in, yep. in light of today's discussion topic, I guess. Yeah, exactly. It keeps me sane. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'm Adam Quinn, 161 uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, my photograph is next to the uh, American Capitol building, I think, at the moment, with sunglasses on. So you can find me and follow me there if you like. I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but uh, as we just discussed with Kate, that's mainly for bots, trolls, and, and, and the worst people. So uh, I, I try to avoid it. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna, uh, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Um, we are sponsored by the Pulses Good Ideas Fund. Thank Thank you very much to them for their support. We really appreciate it. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be too. Bye. Hang in there, folks. Bye.